0: You might work your whole life and never have a boss for 13 years who you love dearly and you know loves you, so thank you, brother. I will now share all of his flaws. (laughs) (laughs) It would only be on one hand. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. You're not rid of me yet, so Ruth 1, we will go. Thinking on this big idea, tragedy to beauty. All right? That's where we are in our series. As we get started, I want to ask you one question. Which one are you, Yanni or Laurel? All right, all right. I don't think we have a lot of agreement here. I heard both. If you're unaware, last week an audio file splashed. In social media, they said one word. The weird thing was, though, like the blue dress from three years ago, half the people who hear the word hear the word Yanny. The other half hear the word Laurel. It depends on how your ears work, the frequencies you can hear, and lots of other factors. So if you're like me, you may have gone to your kids, and you held out the phone, and I heard Laurel, and they, most all of them, heard Yanny. That's for my son, Sam, who heard donut. (laughs) That's the way life works. Sometimes you can share a situation, but experience it completely different than the people you share the situation. Oftentimes, though, life works the opposite. You can hear someone's story that you've never even met, And strangely, it seems like their story lines up with yours a little bit. I had this experience this week, quite tragically, a man named Dr. Kevin Collins, who was a seminary at RTS Seminary, passed away this week, unexpectedly had a heart attack while he was driving. I didn't know Kevin, but I did read his story, and as I read it, it was a little eerie because his story had a lot in common with my own. Like me... Kevin was from Knoxville, Tennessee. We graduated from rival high schools. Like me, he went to the University of Tennessee and got a Bachelor's of Science degree. He had two daughters, as I do. And as I heard his testimony, when he entered ministry, he entered in the midst of some tumultuous relationship, and he had some baggage, and he felt like he wasn't worthy enough to do this. And I sang that same song, In My Soul, for years, and as I was praying for his family and grieving for his family this week, I thought, man, I never met this guy. never even heard of him. But his story lines up with mine a lot. It's amazing. That's the effect you'll get if you read through the book of Ruth. Here's a story that at first glance you might think, this doesn't have that much to do with me. Here's a woman who lived 3,000 years ago, different culture. She lived through a famine. I don't know what that's like all kinds of death and tragedy, how can I connect to that story? Well, what connects you to it is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is actually the gorilla glue that sticks your story to hers and binds them together. So today what I want to do is I want to look here at the story given to us in chapter 1 of Ruth. Then glance to Jesus' story and then tie it into your own story as we proceed together. Let's do that here. We'll start in Ruth chapter 1. I want to recall what happened in the first five verses that we studied last week in case you weren't here. The story is set in uh, the 12 or 1300s BC, a long time ago. Uh, maybe in the time of Gideon or Samson, if you're familiar with this, there was another man living. And this guy, Elimelech, actually left his home in Judah because a great famine came. So he hightailed it to Moab East, which is a region outside of the Promised Land inhabited by ungodly folks. And he lived there. And once he was there, another tragedy happened. First he had the famine, and then... Apparently his sons died and he actually passed away himself. And so this whole story zeroes in on his wife, Naomi, and two daughter-in-laws that she had, Orpha and Ruth. And so we pick it up, the story, after knowing that the husband and the sons have died and we find this family broken and battered, impoverished and hopeless. That's where we arrive In verse 6, read with me today as I read it out loud. As we see the story of Naomi, we will see beauty bloom from tragedy. Verse 6, chapter 1. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food back in Judah. So she's going back. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So here's Naomi. She's heard that God has overcome the famine. Now she wants to bring her people back to the promised land. this is the first point where we see God's sunbeams of hope shining into this tragic situation. Keep reading in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go and return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest. Each of you in the house of your husband. And she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they began to cry. Here's what's happening. At some point along the journey from the country of Moab back to Judah, Naomi puts her tenderly puts her motherly foot down and she says, You know what, guys? The best place for you is not with me. Culturally in that time, if you were going to earn an income, usually the man did that. And so she realized that she can't provide, she can't protect these women. And she says, go fly, fly back home and live blessed by God and find new husbands. Don't stick with me anymore. Flourish by the kindness of God. And that brings us to verse 10. We see a surprising turn. When they hear that, they say, verse 10, no way, no way, mama. We will return with you to your people. So the girls are balking, right? They're pausing, even though Naomi has expressed, I want you to go back home. So she's going to respond to them with some logic. She's going to get very rational here and lay out reasons why you need to go back home while I'm going to Judah. She says here in verse 11, Now turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your own way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying, basically, her reasonings very sound? I'm too old to provide a husband for you. You don't need to be attached to me. I can't do it. It would be 15, 20 years even if I had a son in my old age. Go and remarry. Find your own husband and start afresh. And as she's saying this in verse 13, what you'll notice in Naomi is a darker side, a shadow side start to appear as we are let into what's going on in our own heart. Notice this. She says, No, my daughter's, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. Naomi, in effect, is saying, I'm much too bitter of a woman for you to be around right now. She's mad at God, and she knows it. And you might think, well, why is she mad at God? Well, it might be hard for us to see the hand of God, but in her culture, because they recognized God was sovereign and ordained all things, when anything happened, you would see the hand of God in it. And she is so tempting. She's had a famine. She lost her husband. She lost both of her sons. She is feeling low. She understands that God rules over life and death. She blames Him for the loss of her husband and her sons Instead of responding to these deep trials in faith and repentance, she's bowing up against the sovereign God. And she's saying, I'm mad right now. You don't need to be around me. I will drag you down. I am bitter. And you know that feeling. Perhaps you've cast the same shadow in your own walk with the Lord. You know what it means to feel his hand against you. Look what happens next in the story. After hearing this confession and the reasoning of Naomi, there's a parting of ways. Orpha, one daughter, kisses her goodbye. I love you. You're right. I should go back home. But what about Ruth, the book's namesake? What happens to her? Keep reading here in verse 14. Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. What a picture of commitment, right? It's the opposite of leaving. You're telling me to leave and I don't want to give you a big hug. I will embrace you because Ruth is committed. Verse 15, Naomi said, but look, look at your sister-in-law. She's gone back to her people and to her gods. You need to return also with her. But Ruth speaks here. And in the book of Ruth, oddly enough, she doesn't speak that much as compared to how much Naomi talks. Uh, Much later, Boaz talks. So when Ruth starts speaking, you take notice. It's usually very profound. Look what she says here. The a great picture. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death, parts me from you. And when Naomi saw how Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. And here we see the staggering loyalty of Ruth. When others abandon the relationship, she doubles down. And she does so using incredible God-centered language. She doesn't just say, I'm going to stick with you. Now, she repeats these words, until death, I'm going to be your people. Your God will be my God. Now, if you've read the Bible, that phraseology sounds familiar to you. It's because that's how God talks about his commitment to his people. With Abraham, chapter 17. Later with Moses. In Exodus story, chapter 6. God revealed that he has the same heart as Ruth. God says to his people, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You can move forward in the prophets, Hosea, Jeremiah, Zechariah, they all use this language of God saying, you'll be my people and I will be your God. So Ruth's words here remind us of God's crucial message that says, I will not forsake you, even in the midst of tragedy. God wants you to see, even in the hardest, darkest times, He will not leave you. I was reminded this week of a tragic story from 2011. You might remember it. There was a soldier stationed in Afghanistan who was a Navy SEAL. His name was J.T. Thomason. And in 2011, he went out on a mission with 35 of his comrades, and he was in a Chinook helicopter, and the helicopter was actually sadly shot down by an RPG. Everyone on board perished. They died. J.T. was from Texas, and when his body was brought home, at a funeral there in a big high school gymnasium. 1,500 people came. And strangely, when the funeral procession started and his family members walked in, They brought with him the family dog. He was really close to his chocolate lab. They brought him to the funeral. And as the funeral service went on for an hour, hour and a half, at some point, the dog gets up from his seat near the row and he comes down to the very front. And he lays down in front of the casket. And that dog stays there at his post for an hour throughout the whole Funeral service. That's a picture of man's best friend. And what a picture of the loyalty of our God during our darkest times. He will be faithful. You're supposed to read Ruth, see her faithfulness, multiply it by 10,000 and get just a glimpse of the faithfulness of our good God, we serve a God who will be loyal to us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. His rod, His staff is there to comfort you. And this is the point where Jesus' story intersects with Ruth's story, right? But Christ is God's climactic expression of His loyalty to you. Jesus Christ is the crescendo of allegiance. God wants to shout to you in Jesus, I will never leave you. You know, the prophet Jeremiah was on the front side of Jesus. He saw Him coming, right? He knew the Son of God was coming, a Christ, a Messiah, a Deliverer was coming. And he wrote this words about the coming one, these words in Jeremiah 31. He said, Behold, some days are coming, declares the Lord, When I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it's not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers. When I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, that covenant, they broke. They were disloyal. Unlike Ruth, they were disloyal. Even though God was their husband. So Jeremiah sees a new day. He looks forward in verse 33. He said, in this new covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, I'll put my law within them. It's going to be internalized. I'll write it on their hearts. way well, it can't be messed up, right? Can't get away from it, even if you want to, if I write it on your hearts, says God. I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer will they have to teach each other and say, hey, know the Lord. No. They'll all know me. From the least to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In the Old Testament, God's loyalty was continually trampled by His people. How did God react? Well, He reacted by coming Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see staggering loyalty as Jesus comes. shows us a two-directional loyalty. He's loyal to the Father because when Jesus comes, He's always obedient. He never backs up from God. He never turns away. He's always loyal, but He's also loyal to us. Expressed in how He lays down His own life in your stead to take the punishment for your sin. A disloyal person would have turned away when you sinned against God. Christ does the opposite. He gets up into you by His Spirit. Christ is here for the taking for any of you who take faith in Him today, if you turn to Jesus and say, you are better, you are more satisfying, I want to place my hope in you. I want to treasure you. I turn away from my sin. I repent of my sin. This notion of saving myself, of going my own way, I will commit to you. Then Christ is loyal from that point on. He'll put His Spirit in you. He will convert you. You can make that decision even today. And for many of you who are following Christ already, I want to specifically encourage you at this point because it can radically change your whole life if you hone in on this concept that Jesus is loyal to you, that Jesus is committed to you, Jesus is standing by you in everything that you do. Think about something that's really emotionally, relationally hard in your life. Think about having to apologize to somebody and really repent when you've screwed things up. A good apology is really hard to do. I was reading this week, a counselor named Brad Hambrick wrote down some marks of a really good apology, marks of a repentant apology versus a bad one. And I thought, man, I want to go for that. And I thought, how can I do this? This is going to be hard. But with Jesus committed to you, you can offer a sincere apology. Here's some things that he wrote. He said, when you sin and you need to apologize, you need to address everyone that you have hurt, right? If someone was directly or indirectly affected by your sin or observed your sin, you need to seek everyone's forgiveness. When you fail to do that, what you're saying is that your nasty actions are okay, that God actually likes the way you have behaved. How do you actually apologize to everybody that your sin has affected Well, you can only do that if you know Jesus is committed to you. He's loyal. He's not going to leave. He's not going to see your sin and say, Oh, you sinned? He already knows it. And he's chosen to be by your side. Another thing about a good apology is you avoid certain words, right? Nobody likes apologies that have the words if, or maybe, or but. Those are bad words to use in the... Apology, what does it mean if you say, you know, I'd like to apologize if I happen to. What does that mean when you say that? Well, what it means is you're calling into question whether you've ever done anything wrong, right? Or maybe, well, maybe I have uh, wronged here. What that does is it opens things up for a debate, right? Let's debate whether I was actually wrong or not. Or the word, uh, but you can say, you know, I'd like to apologize for what I did, but, and that transforms this into an accusation you're fixing to make to another person. How do you avoid these things? Well, you avoid these things by being freed from guilt. And you can have that freedom when you realize Jesus Christ is loyal to you. Jesus Christ has come and bought you. You're his brother, and he will not think less of you. He will not abandon you. That frees you up to be open in your relationship and conquer the hardest of things, even a repentant apology. All of this is made possible when you realize the staggering loyalty of Jesus crisscrosses with your own story because He is loyal to you. The second point here, we see the staggering loyalty of Ruth and of Jesus and how that works in your life. Second point is I want you to see here in Ruth a sojourner's homecoming. okay? A sojourner's homecoming. Now let's reorient our minds back to the story. Verse 19. We'll pick it up. So what happened to Naomi and Ruth anyway? We know they were headed back to the promised land. What happened? Verse 19. This is where it gets interesting. It gets real. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. That's their home city there in the Promised Land. And when they came to Bethlehem, what happens? She's not going to be able to sneak into town. The Bible says the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? What's going on here? You can almost picture this if you put yourself in Naomi's sandals. She's coming home after being gone a long time, undoubtedly draped in shame, right? She's not being escorted by her husband, not being escorted by her sons. Instead, she has two of God's enemies, pagan women with her as she's coming into town. It seems like her peers can't even believe it. You can almost see it in your mind's eyes. She's walking into town on the road, and people stop their cooking, they stop their cleaning, and they're like, oh my goodness, is that Naomi? Here's a woman who left in her prime. She's coming back with the dishwater brown waves of pain and hurt having washed over her, leaving the stench of pain and suffering. She comes into town. People don't even recognize her. Oh, is that you? Apparently, she hears this, so she stops. She's going to make a reply. You can see that, too. Finally, she makes it halfway down the street, and then finally, she's had enough. She stops, and she turns around, and you see it next. Right here in verse 20. Among the gossip and the gaping gasp, people say, is that Naomi? She says to them, you know what? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Now that's a comeback, even if you don't understand what she's saying. And here is what she means. We probably have an appropriate category if you've read the Bible before for God changing people's names. For instance, Jacob, when he wrestled with God, his name was changed to Israel, which means fights with God. Simon, he encounters Jesus, and Jesus says, you know what, from now on you're going to be called Peter, which means rock. But it is interesting, we don't have as big a category for someone independently of God changing their own name. But that's what Naomi does. He says, don't even call me Naomi anymore. You're saying, is that Naomi? No, it's not. Don't call me that, because Naomi means pleasant in Hebrew. I left here pleasant, don't call me that. Now call me Mara, which means bitter, because I am angry. I'm going to own this bitterness. That's who I am to the core, she says. Keep reading because she's not done. Verse 21. Another thing, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Say this for Naomi. She's real, right? She's gritty. She's raw. She's going to tell you what she thinks about you. And here she's speaking out of a pit of hurt. Look what comes out. She has three accusations. Not against the people in the town. You can picture it. The people in the town are like, who are you? She doesn't accuse them. She accuses God. Three different ways. First, she says God has emptied her. Not talking about a belly. She's talking about her family. She left town with a full family. Now she's coming back. She blames God for this. As she limps back into town, mourning her heavy loss, she says, I'm empty. That's interesting. We'll look at that phrase later. But she says, God has emptied me. Secondly, she says, God has judged me. The phrase, the Lord has testified against me, that's a phrase from the court of law. Right? Her experience is that God measured her and found her wanting. Now, we're not told if God's actually judging her here or not. But we know God did forbid Marrying people from Moab who are worshiping false gods. So God forbade that. Maybe she's feeling guilt here. One thing's for sure is that God doesn't always explain His mysterious providential purposes. But she's feeling that God is judging her. Thirdly, even beyond that, she feels that God is personally against her. All of these feelings you might can relate to. They're certainly real for her. Look at the phrase. She said, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Maybe you notice this as you're reading through it. Naomi will switch the terms she uses for God. In one sentence, she'll say the Lord. The next, she'll say the Almighty. The next, she'll say the Lord. The next, she'll say the Almighty. Why is she doing that? Well, the Lord is the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, which expresses faithfulness and loyalty. So sometimes she kind of gets that. But at other times, she calls God the Almighty. That is not a name of God. That's more of a title for God. It means uh, a judge who rules high above me. The greatest of all judges. The Almighty. You know where you find that word 30 times? Find that word in the book of Job. Shaddai. Because Job feels like personally God is afflicting him That's her state. She's proclaiming to anybody that will listen that God is a judge without goodness, sovereign without mercy, a furor rather than a father. And that's her dark perspective, and that's the pain that we jump into when we see Ruth's story. I'm thankful that the text doesn't stop here. If you look in verse 22, you're reminded that even in the midst of pain, God is still working. Look at verse 22. Very subtle, but it's here. So Naomi has returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, is with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. There's two things here that are very hopeful, and I want to point out to you. First, note that the ladies have come at a very special time. They arrive at the beginning of the barley harvest. That was the first crop about April or May that would be harvested in the society in Judah. And what that ensured was that they would have plenty of food as widows and they would probably have work if they could do it. God was working even in her misery to bring her back at a special time where he could work their restoration. You know how this works. It's like being in a play or a movie and you've got your own lines. You've got your own script and you're focusing on your lines in this movie. And you're focusing so hard, it's harder for you to see the whole picture. So you need a producer, a director who sees the whole vision for the whole thing that you can't see. That's playing a minor part. Naomi can't even see all that God has provided for her from her pain perspective. We see it here. In the text, God has brought them back at a special time to effect their salvation. Secondly, God has rescued his child. Now look here, in the last four verses, the word Bethlehem has been repeated three times. It's repeated, Bethlehem, 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 over and over because it's significant for a couple reasons. One, it's the very city that she started from. She left from Bethlehem. Now she's come full circle and she is a sojourner no more. God has delivered her. Her sojourn is over. This is the homecoming. Also what's important about Bethlehem, there's two people in the whole Bible that are most associated with Bethlehem. That's King David and also King Jesus. Now think what would have happened if God wouldn't have brought her back to Bethlehem Even if her husband wouldn't have died. Let's say the husband would have lived and the sons would have lived. They may have settled forever in Moab. That means that King David may have never happened. Ruth ends up being the great grandma of King David, right? Jesus comes from David. So much so that when you get to the New Testament, what's going on the opening scenes, You see, Mary and Joseph headed back to Bethlehem because that's where David came from. David came from there because Naomi came from there and Ruth was attached to Naomi's hip. God is working in a grand way here. More than you can ever see. This could be happening in your life too. Think about it, you mothers out there. Mothers have a lot of pain, a lot of trials, just in the job description built in. Think about this: What if God were to tell you this current problem you're having with your in-laws, or with the relationship with your husband, or your body's just not working the way it is supposed to, feels broken? This current problem is actually going to be the thing, the driving force that I use to save your son to save your daughter I bet all of you mothers would take that deal right every mother heal would say okay I didn't know you were going to use this problem with my husband and actually mysteriously somehow supernaturally use that to save my kids oh this is bigger than me I get it I can now endure that's what we see in Ruth this very problem that rules in her life in Naomi is actually being used by God for the redemption of all people. God is doing more in your suffering than you can and will ever know. And this is where we see, again, Ruth's story intersects with the story of Jesus himself. Jesus, too, was a sojourner in a foreign land. Right? His home was in heaven, and he decided to come to earth, was sent by God to tabernacle, With us? In fact, Paul in Philippians 2 uses a strange phrase when he talks about Jesus coming. Remember the phrase he uses? He says, for Jesus came and emptied himself. That's the very phrase that Naomi said she was feeling. She's saying, I'm feeling I've been emptied. Well, that's pointing forward to Jesus who came and emptied himself for the sake of his people, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, on a cross, so that God would exalt him as the name above all names. Notice the pattern. Through pain and suffering comes exaltation. In order for glory to happen, Christ must First, suffer. And such is the path of all who follow Him. The way of the cross, all of your trials and tribulations, they're like building materials that God is using to craft you into a vessel that will persevere all the way to your own homecoming and effect those in your life in ways that you will never, ever know. I Get this. Jesus himself is not a forever sojourner, right? When Jesus was here, and after his resurrection, he didn't apply for permanent residency in Israel. No, he, was, he wanted to go back home. Something that happened that we often overlook in Jesus' story, and that's called the ascension. That's when he was actually taken up into the clouds. We don't celebrate this much, but last week, May 10th was actually Ascension Day, when churches historically have uh, have celebrated the sojourn of Jesus being over. Somewhat ironically, the man I mentioned earlier in the sermon who passed away, Kevin Collins, due to the nature of social media these days, you can actually see when someone tweets their last tweet or posts their last Instagram post, And Kevin Collins' last tweet was actually about the homecoming of Jesus. About the sojourn of Christ being over. He posted three things from what's called the Heidelberg Confession. And he wanted everyone to know this about Jesus, that when he comes home to the Father, it matters in your story. How does it matter? It matters in three ways. First, when Jesus goes home and his sojourn is over, we know he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. What's that mean? Well, you ever feel like you're alone and isolated and nobody hears you? Jesus does, and he's in the ear of the Father pleading your case before God, saying, uh-uh, "Remember him, he's righteous. Don't overlook her. I died for her. Be with her, don't leave him." That's Jesus pleading for you as your advocate and he can only do that because his sojourn is over and he's at home with the Father. Secondly, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge. That is Jesus, the head, and he will take us, his members, up to himself. What does that mean? It means that according to the Bible, we're connected together to Jesus so intimately that He's called our head and we're called the members of His body. And logically, if the head is in heaven, the members will also follow. So when you see Jesus and His sojourn is finally over and He's ascending, you can mark it down. Your sojourn will finally one day be over and it will end with your presence being in the presence of Jesus Himself, the presence of the Father, This image may not help you, but it helped me. Have you ever seen a a cat try to get through a really small place? They don't go feet first. A cat will stick his head anywhere to measure whether his entire body will go in because cats aren't built like us with shoulders, right? They're built with tiny little shoulders that follow the size of their head. So if they can get their head through any crevice, all of their body goes through. That's the image here. Jesus has made it. And because His head has gone through, we too as the body will arrive in heaven with Jesus. And thirdly, this is why it matters that Jesus' sojourn is over. It means that He sends His Spirit here as an earnest. Think about earnest money if you're going to buy a house. It's a pledge to someone. It's by the Spirit's power that we can seek the things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Instead of seeking the things of this earth, because Jesus' sojourn is over, He sent His Spirit, and we can now seek the things of heaven. Author Scotty Clark writes it like this, about this idea. He says, The Spirit, who has been given to us as a guarantee, a pledge, a security, a security, a surety of good, inheritance, we will come into the full possession of the inheritance earned for us by Christ at the bodily resurrection. Without the ascension, the Holy Spirit would not have been poured out. That's why our Lord said that it was necessary for Him to go away. That's why the Spirit is the comforter. He communicates Christ to us. He strengthens us. He renews us. He sanctifies us. He assures us that despite our sins and doubts, all of this is really true. This is how you can put your hope in Jesus today. He is loyal. His sojourn is over. He has made it to the Father. And one day He's coming back. Remember the vision of John the Apostle in Revelation 19 is of Jesus returning on a white horse. And what's He called? He's called faithful and true. Picture of a loyal God coming back for his people. Staggering loyalty of Jesus Christ. He is a sojourner, delivered. I hope you see how your story is intersecting with the story of Jesus. And there's another point I want to point out here. Point three, we also see here in the story of Ruth that an enemy tribe is being targeted. Okay? So the story is over in chapter one. We're not going to go on a chapter 2, but in the story of chapter 1, there's a thread that's left dangling out. A thread that if you pull it, it will run through the entire book of Ruth and through the entire Bible. And here it is. It's important. The fact is that Ruth is a Moabite. Why is that important? Well, the Moabite people group, the tribe, were marked as enemies of God. Okay, throughout the Old Testament, if you thought about, uh oh, who are the bad guys of Israel? Who are the people that are against God? Philistines, Moabite, they would be in the top two. These are the people that didn't worship God. They worshiped the fish god, Chemosh. These were the people that sent Balaam to curse Israel. These were people who worshipped false gods through child sacrifice. Think about that. Ruth's younger sister could have been sacrificed as a baby, as a part of this pagan evil that drug down the entire society, entire ethnic group were against God. And yet it's pointed out that God chose to save Ruth, a Moabite, An enemy of God. Why is that? God is all about folding aliens into His people. God wants the entire world, every people group, to know the greatness of a good Father in Jesus Christ. He wants the Kurds to know. He wants the die people to know. He wants every people group to know His glory see this in the life of Jesus as well. Remember Jesus. He was an Israelite. He came as the Savior of Israel. But even still, when he's walking around, he's encountering people that are of a different ethnic group outside of Israel. And what does he do? Remember the time a centurion came up to him? And he said, Jesus, leader, master, my servant is dying. And Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to heal him. And then later... He says, you've never seen faith like this guys, in all of Israel. It's a picture because one day people are going to come from the east, like Ruth, she was from the east, and from the west, and they're all going to recline with Abraham at his table, meaning they're all going to be a part of the family of God. This isn't just a Jewish thing. It's for all people. You might remember the story of Jesus uh confronting and coming in contact with uh, the demon-possessed man, the Gadarene. This guy is such an enemy of God and the people, they have to chain him up. And When he sees Jesus coming, remember what he says? He says, what do you have to do with me, son of God? Because he was an enemy. And yet, in Christ, God seeks out this Gentile enemy of his own. And Jesus heals him And then he says to the man, you know what, go and tell all of your people what God has done for you. Jesus knows the mission of the church is going to be go and make disciples of all nations, not political nations, but tribes and ethnic groups, social linguistic groups of people. God wants them all to come into Jesus. Why is that? Why is God so concerned to show you that Ruth is a Moabite woman? Well, he wants to use this principle. The principle at work here is if something can be attractive to many people, it is much more glorious. This weekend, the NBA uh, combine was going on. And that's when they get all the basketball players in college who are good enough and they bring them together together and they make them play to see who's the best that might go to the NBA. And they also measure them every which way to compare them to one another and to past performers. And this one guy showed up, seven foot tall guy named Mo Bamba. That's his name. And Mo Bamba's seven foot and he had the widest arms ever recorded in the NBA, 7'10", this way, 7'10". His draft stock just went up. Why? Because compared to every other person who's ever played professional basketball, he has the greatest wingspan. This same principle is at work in the gospel. God wants to see Jesus proclaimed compared to every other God such that people will say, oh, he's the greatest. Compare him to gods in China. Among the Pali people groups, among the dying people, He will shine the brightest and He will look more glorious for it. And this is where your story begins to intersect with Jesus' story because you've been given a mission as the church to go and broadcast Jesus to all people. And this week, this very week, you're sending a team of us, six of us, go wheels up on Thursday to head to Nepal to minister to people groups who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going as short-termers. We're only there 10 days. We're working with long-termers, both internationals like us and the national church. And our role will be to encourage their long-term work of church planting, Bible translation, evangelism. How can you be a part of that? Not all of us can go. We get that. But every day we'll be sending back posts on Facebook, Instagram shots, Twitter feed, so that you can pray for us. You can read this and say, "Ah, Ruth was a Malbazi. God wants more people from different tribes." I will pray that God will show Himself to all peoples through this trip to Nepal, and not even just week. We're going to have an interactive sermon time right now. All right, I'm going to ask people who are here who are going to Nepal to come on up here at the front. If you're here on the six-man team, come on up here at the front. Just sit down right now. And then if you know these people, if you're connected to these people, we can't all come. But if you're their family, their friends, their buddies, come on up here with them. And we're just going to close out with a prayer time. If you're in your seat, this isn't checkout time. This is Bible time. God wants you praying that more roofs will come to him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're just going to take a moment. We're going to intersect our story with the story of Jesus Christ and the story of Ruth. As we pray, we call out that God will be glorified through this trip to Nepal so that all peoples will come to him in Jesus. So let's pray.